In just 120 years, we've gone from a widespread belief that manned flight was impossible to mankind flying a helicopter on Mars. And while the Mars mission was the product of years of effort by thousands of people, the original manned flight was the work of two ordinary people tinkering in a barn, which makes Matt Voigt's wonder. Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Hello and welcome to season three of Why Is This Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story we can rip from the headlines and ask Hollywood when no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vega, and with me is Matt Voigt, a researcher with a PhD in anthropology who specializes in how refugees manage online privacy, but is also involved in independent film production. Just to note before we start, Matt's calling in from the Netherlands, so the Zoom quality isn't great. I cleaned things up as best I could, but there are a few spots where he's a little hard to hear that I had to leave into the conversation to make sense. And I assume that if you insist on pristine sound quality, you probably weren't listening to the podcast in the first place. But it's a great conversation. Matt's an interesting guy. One of the movies he's worked on recently is called The Moment, which is a short film that's controlled by the audience's brainwaves. We're going to talk more about that movie next week as we'll be talking to the director of the film. But for this week, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Tell us about two tinkers who changed human history and why their story needs to be a movie. Well, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, you know, it took them just a few years to uh, working almost entirely on their own to take us from not flying to flying. Well, we, we love to romanticize the, like, two guys in a garage thing, but, like, Usually people don't work in isolation. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak invented the personal computer, but Wozniak was part of like a computer sort of hackers club who would build their own machines. And then when they, all the stuff they brought to the Macintosh, they kind of borrowed a lot of ideas from IB, or from Bell Labs. And the Wright brothers really were just in isolation. You know, that, that's what really interests me about this. And, you know, when you see a lot of these movies generally brought to the screen, the more conventional biopic, um, I'm thinking something like uh, the imitation game, or the way does portray these uh, these innovators, uh, these scientists, as working on their own. It doesn't really give a lot of attention to context. Their collaborators, or what's actually going on in science at the time, what is their creation, and uh, how does this fit in with everything else that was going on? Part of what interests me about the Wright brothers is that they did do a lot of this innovation on their own. I mean, it wasn't entirely on their own. They did have a few collaborators. Um, they had Charlie Taylor, who was working locally with Dayton, who was a mechanic, uh, helped build their engine. Um, they were in touch with Octave Chanute, a civil engineer who was based out of Chicago at the time and was putting in touch a lot of people who were working on aviation at the time, actually. But as far as the innovation that was happening, it was almost entirely theirs. I mean, they had a tremendous scientific mind that they really just break down. What is the problem? What is our research question? How are we going to approach this? And what do we, what do we want to do with that? They realized there that to make a plane, uh, well, to fly, you needed to make a machine that could practically do that. You needed to make a machine that was aerodynamic and a machine that you control in the air could fly under practical circumstances. But it was kind of a popular and scientific consensus at the time that this heavier-than-air travel wasn't necessarily going to happen. And uh, the institutional support, a, a lot of it that was happening during that was from people like Samuel Langley, who was secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, physicist and astronomer by background, he was able to get financial support to produce his flying machines, which he called aerodromes. He built them, he had them built, uh, and he'd take them into the Potomac River 
uh, mounted on the, there's a spring-loaded cannon that was mounted onto a houseboat. And he called the press and say, I'm going to fly. And uh, he'd stick that machine on the spring-loaded cannon. It would go and it, it just would sink right into the, into the river. And this was the scientific popular image of heavier-than-air flight at the time, was just this thing. And again, he's trying, he's trying to make a powerful machine. He's like, well, and he's trying to get a specific place in history, Samuel Langley. You know, he's like, I want to be the first to fly, and we're going to fly by making something that's powerful enough to take off from the ground. And the rights are completely not seen like that. They're seeing, all right, well, if you want to fly, you need a machine that is aerodynamic and is capable of flying under practical conditions. Something that is capable of flying rather than just being like, well, we're going to get our thing in the air. And then, uh, then that's that. Uh, there was actually a, like, a belief that was taken seriously that we could get into space. And around that time, that we could get into space if you just invented a big enough cannon, we could <laughs> shoot something all the way to the moon. And like Jules Verne wrote a book from the Earth to the Moon about this like ballistic society that builds this gigantic cannon and shoots this thing. <laughs> and the ending of the book is like, oh crap, how do we get them back? <laughs> I actually didn't know that. What interests me about the period is that there's a, a lot of the time that's just up in the air about what is and isn't possible and how you might go about doing it. You know, by the late 1800s, you'd recently seen things like time zones being standardized, uh, the internal combustion engine, electricity, you know, all this stuff that we, uh, we take for granted. And they really like built the modern world within the span of Oh, yeah, totally. You know, instantaneous, uh, the telegraph and then later the telephone, you know, instantaneous communication across distances. This is something we're, we're doing right now to record this podcast. And that's something that in the early 1800s was, was complete fantasy. And that also affects the way that people conceive of what's possible. You know, the people thought it was, you know, communication with the dead might be possible. Spiritualism was going on. The spiritualists were thinking, you know, there are scientists in the land of the dead, and they're trying to build a spiritual telegraph, which is like a physical device. It runs on spirit science so they can communicate with us. Just what was really possible was, was up in the air, so to speak. And what's interesting, again, about flight is that it seemed like you know, a lot of people were saying, eh, not going to happen. Well, it must have seemed like magic when it did happen. Yeah, well, it, it seemed like quackery, you know. Um, this, is, this is the problem the rights have because they spend a few years perfecting the planes. They get it to fly. In 1903, they fly. Uh, they do four flights, the longest of which is 59 seconds. They pack up from Kitty Hawk and they go back home to Dayton, Ohio for Christmas. And then they spend the next two years perfecting the plane making more flights, refining it. They do over 150 flights. The longest one is, I think, about 39 minutes at some point. Their concern during this period is that they want to make sure that their claim is absolute, that no one else can say, well, we flew first. And they want to prove that through having produced this thing that, that can actually fly and that consistently flies and that just clearly really flies. So this is, I mean, this is, this is their concern at that point. And then 
After that, they start shopping it around to first they try the U.S., they try and sell it to the U.S. government. And this is where it, it's, it's clear that the other minds are just not on this on this this level, not this, this headspace. You know, they write to the appropriate government agency. The letter back says, like, I'm sorry, we're not funding aviation research at the time. Like, they just completely did not get that there was this fully built aircraft that could fly. They weren't asking for money. They weren't asking for research funds. You know, they, they'd already done it. Now, part of that, of course, was because they uh, established their claims. They wanted to not let the technology get out. So the way they frame these letters is basically, yes, we built an airplane. No, you can't see it, not until after you sign a contract with us. Of course, the fine print is, if this plane doesn't exist, the contract is null and void. But uh, it sounds like they, they get a bridge they want to sell. And, and especially in a time when the Charlotte was crashing into the Potomac. Oh, exactly. It, it yeah. has to come across <laughs> like, oh, here's two more nutcases. <laughs> exactly. Um, Wilbur, in his, his letter, in his one letter he writes, he described himself as, as I'm an enthusiast, not a crane. Um, so this is how he's, he's having to frame himself. It's almost literally Grandpa Simpson's PSI, I'm not a crackpot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, at the same time, when they per- were perfecting it at 1904 and 1905, they were flying around in Ohio there. They weren't out in the, the boonies out in Carolina there. And that did occasionally attract attention. And the first article that actually gets published on this, the first legitimate article about them, is a guy named Is Root. He publishes this journal called Gleanings in Bee Culture. He's the first one that publishes about them. You know, so you have this news like trickling out there, like it's, it's showing up in this, this bee journal. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, it didn't necessarily have the, the air of uh, definitive discovery that it was. Or, yeah, it's like or, the Washington Post. <laughs> Then again, like according to the bee movie, we don't understand how bees fly either. <laughs> I don't think that's actually true, but that's how the meme goes. <laughs> well, one thing that's remarkable to me is so many inventions are built on other inventions. And there's, some, there's that context. Whereas this is something that like mankind has wanted to do since Leonardo da Vinci, if not since Icarus. And it's really, there's no real, I mean, they, they, you know, worked on bicycles and sort of new mechanics. But in terms of actually making a thing fly, there was no precursor. It was just no one had ever been able to fly. And then one day passes and people are able to fly. And they did their first flight was in 1905. Within, you know, a little more than 10 years, you've got the Red Baron shooting down, you know, Snoopy. <laughs> but like, you know, World War One, we have planes with guns on them. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. After the race. And then by 1969, 64 years later, we're on the goddamn moon. Exactly. You know, it's crazy. You know, people did, well, I said heavier than air travel. People in the 1800s, there was flight, but it was lighter than air travel, like hot air balloons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of it was the province of, you know, rich eccentrics and daredevils. Uh, But you had a lot of innovation that was going on with that. You also had a lot of glider experimentation as well. People like Otto Lilienthal, he did that until he died in a glider accident. <laughs> um, the Wrights tremendously respected Otto Lilienthal, and learning from his example, they also realized that you know you needed to make a safe thing, so not dying. Key kind of component of the Wrights' research method, but also their book ended by these daredevils, where 
you know, you've got people interested in hot air balloons before them. And then afterwards, when flight actually gets out, you know, attracting more organized engineering, and that's attracting daredevil types who are interested in thrill of flying. And this is not necessarily an environment where the rights uh, have much of a place other than, well, Wilbur dies in 1912, I think. And then after that, you know, Orville's much more the elder statesman. It's, it's really moved on since then. And it moves on quite quickly. They never envisioned that you would fly at night, for example. I mean, to them, when they were building it, this was they were working on what their plane was. You know, they didn't think that uh, what might come after that, jet travel, that was not something that was uh, that was in their heads. Well, it's, it's very hard to predict the impact of your own invention. When Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, he predicted this would be so important to be one in every town. And now, like, we all have one in our pockets. Oh, totally. You know, you know Graham Bell actually got into aviation as well uh, huh? during that period after that. He thought that the airplane that the Wrights had built, like that flyer-style model, was too dangerous. He wanted to build a safer aircraft out of tetrahedral kites so like these geometric floating kites you can look up the images of them they look tremendously interesting not terribly practical yeah yeah well i was thinking when you're talking about the daredevils you know trying to fly faster that there must have also been after the wright brothers plane went public there must have been engineers who tried to build their own and didn't have the rights sort of meticulous attention to safety and you know, they flew for a minute and then they went back for two years to perfect the design. There had to be people who were like, I'm doing this right now. And, you know, keeping themselves alive was less of a priority. There had to have been people who just died trying to replicate what the Wright brothers had done. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I actually don't know as much about that. Like who was building home-built aircraft right after the Wrights? Like, you know, I can say that like, uh, you know, my dad's a private pilot and uh, he got some designs from, uh, it was either, it was, I think it was Dick or Bert Rattan, experimental aircraft plans and materials. And he half built an airplane sometime in the 80s. And it sat in our basement ever since. Wow. So that was always like a feature of, uh, maybe that's what made me partially interested in this, but that was always a feature in my house growing up was, you know, taking friends down the basement and sitting on a couch and watching a movie. You know, there's the half built wings and lodge just right next to us oh that's cool but yeah i don't know who was actually like i realize now i don't know what airplane manufacturer looked like that first after the right yeah uh, but then, even though there was there there were some companies that started up obviously governments were quite interested but i don't know if maybe that's outside the scope of our movie I, and i don't know if maybe you have thoughts on this like where does the story end because you could build up to the first flight but it seems like you know, that was pretty brief and they continued to work on this after that. I don't know what the logical stopping point is. Yeah, it's, you know, in some ways, the development of the airplane, I didn't necessarily think that that would be quite worth it as the, the subject of the movie. I mean, I thought of when I thought of the way this could begin, I thought it could open with a film, like a full color version of a Trip to the Moon, the movie, you know, the, the short one where the, the moon capsule gets launched straight into eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Georges George Mali movie, you know, the science fiction movie from the same period, but make like a full color version of it, uh, kind of similar to what was done in the, uh, the Smashing Pumpkins Tonight Tonight music. Uh, 
detail and uh, then kind of pull out from that fictional full color world into like the black and white or sepia of history of the movie itself. And I thought that was a way to begin it. But for the period, I mean, I think you could capture like a lot of what they did, uh, what the rights did without necessarily having it white. It's like the climax, but that start more from 1903, where I mentioned where they made the flight, have it open with like the first flight and then have it be this period where they're perfecting the flight, they're perfecting the craft and they're trying to shop it around to people and say, we've made this plane, we have it, no, you can't see it. Yet. Yeah, um, yeah. And then ultimately, you know, it kind of ends sometime around, you know, 1910, 1912, you know, around World War I-ish where this world has changed. Uh, this, this aviation landscape has changed. You know, there's, there's not quite that space for this innovation and development that the Wright brothers did, that they, uh, they effectively put themselves out of business. Right, right. And, and they did it so well, you know. And, and World War I is really a, I don't know, a kind of line in the sand where sort of industrialization really takes hold. You know, like a lot of the subtext of Lord of the Rings is like Tolkien came back from the war and suddenly Britain was all factories and this sort of pastoral England of his imagination, you know, the Shire was gone yeah. and replaced by this sort of war machine. But we really went from like sort of lone inventors and tinkerers to big companies and governments and workshops, you know, developing things. So they're kind of the last of the kind. And as far as a movie, like the basic story of these guys invented an airplane and then more, you know, we got more airplanes and then, you know, everybody, everybody knows that. You can't, you have, you have to focus on, on the Wright brothers themselves and what made these two guys tick that, A, they could do this thing that most people thought was impossible. A lot of people had tried and failed. But also, I love the idea that they built an airplane. What you just said, like, yes, we built an airplane. No, you can't see it. Like, it takes a very specific kind of personality to do that. And that's really interesting to me. Yeah. And, you know, this is all about defending their claim as well, about establishing this beyond a reasonable doubt that they... Uh, they were the ones that need this. And yet still this even, this, uh, you know, there's disputes that go on into, uh, into the 40s. Smithsonian uh, still is kind of attached to Samuel Langley's aerodrome, its claim. He was theirs. And they hire, they hire people to rebuild the aerodrome. And they claim from that rebuilding that technically it could fly. It's like this kind of mealy mouth claim, but they make this claim and this so incenses Orville, the surviving brother, that in 1942, so think you now World War II is going on, he packs up the original Wright flyer, like the 1903, the one that made the first flight, and he sends it to Britain. He says, all right, the British Museum gets the flyer. You know, I'm not going to do business with the Smithsonian. Wow. And so these, these disputes, this, this was really zealously guarded by them. And these disputes still happen. It was eventually, I think, resolved in 48 after, after Orville died. But that's, that's officially along with this, this idea that, all right, you can't make those claims. The Wrights made the plane and they flew and it was their technology. And I think that's a great... That's a great thrust of, if you're kind of doing a character study of these guys, the frustration that must have been like, we invented this miracle, we were able to fly, but we can't tell anybody about it or someone will steal our idea. And even though we did this, we can't, we're not sure we're going to get the credit for it. 
And there's probably a, f- a factor of like, how do we make money off this thing? And, you know, you think it's this triumphant moment when you invent something and it's really, you know, the beginning of your worries. And then again, like Wilbur dies at age 45, seven years after the first flight, he doesn't really get to see the long-term impact that this invention has. And he probably doesn't, you know, he really dies before I would imagine they were able to cash in on this much. Yeah, it's, they were interested in the question of flight and the process of making the plane. And you get some sense in their writing of the excitement they felt at those ideas. But that process of production to them, you know, it, it was it was work they liked to do. But it was like, like after they made the flights in 1903, they send back this simple telegram that's just like, oh, well, we, uh, you know, flight achieved coming back home. You know, it was it was just all part of the process there. And Wilbur's journal, I think it is, says something like, and so we've returned home confident that we had changed the world. They have this tremendous amount of patience for establishing that claim, for building craft. And another kind of, I suppose, another character arc you could put with that is that, well, one, you mentioned that, you know, Wilbur died in 1912. He was a bit more of the ambitious brother in terms of making the crapping discoveries public. And Orville, after Wilbur died, didn't necessarily have those, those same kind of, uh, that same kind of ambition. But, you know, Wilbur had to learn to deal with the press. He had to learn to be this public figure, to make these flights, to give these interviews, to talk to all kinds of different people uh, in Europe and America, to defend their claims in court. So I, I don't know that they were necessarily outgoing by nature, but they really had to learn to be that based off of the public nature of this thing that they've done. You know, that increased from uh, the point that they're trying to shop it around. Well, that's, not, that's another thing that fascinates me about this, because they are really kind of the classic like lone tinkerers, you know, kind of working on their own on this eccentric project that no one else believes in, but then they become incredibly public figures. And that has to be a very, like a jarring transition for them. These guys alone work in the workshop with people kind of saying like, bah, you'll never do it. And now suddenly the whole world wants to talk to them. Yeah, that, ha- that has to be a big adjustment for both of them. Yeah, we have biographies that are written of them. We have you know, extensive letters that they wrote. And I'm trying to think, you know, the, the bits that I've, I've read through that and what they felt about that. I'm not exactly sure, but I think there's a lot of rich opportunity for speculation trying to explore that emotional experience of what this must have been like to do this thing, and then suddenly they're in the spotlight. And, and anytime you're you know, doing a biopic or portraying a real person on screen, you're to some extent creating a character. And so I think the main like exercise of doing this movie is trying to get into the heads of these guys who, you know, even in their own journals are just like, that was satisfactory. Like it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's kind of how you envision people from, you know, the early 1900s of, you know, just these kind of stern, taciturn, you know, guys who smoke cigars and drink scotch and just, uh, you know, never expressed anything, you know, so how do you start with that and then get past that facade into like what made these guys take what motivated them? And you were saying earlier, like, I do get a sense of everything I've read about them. They were less motivated by like dreams of like getting rich and starting some, you know, aviation business than just the pure science of like, can we do this thing? Can you, is this possible? Can we make it possible? Yeah, it was the question of possibility. And it was eventually the nature of the claim, the fact that they've done this. They start working on it. And, you know, there's a process that they go through. 
now over three, four years, five years, just in that, that initial period. And you know, I, I don't know what made them go from, well, hey, we could we could make a plane, let's, you know, we could fly. Eh, we're making progress. Well, I I think they kind of, you know, at some point they went from that, this is just a crazy idea to, hey, we're actually working on it to hey, we're making progress. You know, we understand how history sorted out, but at the time they didn't know how long it would take, but it was it was steady progress and they made Yeah, and they, and they just like everybody else, they didn't know it was possible or not until they did it. In some ways, it's crazy that it wasn't, you know, heavier than air travel was birds had been doing it for a very long time, of course. And, uh, you know, but the idea that a human could do it, uh, for some reason, that took a very long time. We're, we're a lot heavier than birds. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And our bodies aren't built for it. Right. right. To, build, to build a bird-like machine. To figure out well what elements the bird will be incorporate. You now it's it's lucky that nobody had the idea to cover a fuselage in feathers and hope it would fly. Oh, somebody probably tried to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, this is the thing. We don't know who was off in a village in Italy somewhere in the 1600s, being like, "Well, I'm going to take my bird thing to the top of the parapet," and then just jumped off and uh, fell through the the house there and to the stuff of local legend that was promptly forgotten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, history remembers the successes and who knows how many failures are piled up at the bottom of that ravine. Yeah, but this is, you know, this is also what, what you were talking about in terms of these, these kind of stereo, what, what you imagine of the early 1900s, the sort of social life and interaction that's happening, the sort of way that people conduct themselves. I, I think that's an interesting challenge to, to show on screen because in some ways the rights are they've done this very special thing and there there's certainly enough that's interesting that's going on at this period there's enough that's interesting around them but how do you do this where at the center of it got people who are relatively taciturn or you know not necessarily uh you know the intentionally charismatic yeah yeah all right well who do you see directing the movie and telling the story yeah, well, I throw that back at you, you know, based off what we've talked about. I mean, I always I always thought of it in terms of the story and how to write it. I honestly never got so far as to, uh, you know, all right, well, I definitely want to pin down that director. Uh, based off of what we've talked about, you want to throw in a suggestion, Mike? Yeah, this, this might seem kind of left field, but um, Kelly Riker, who most recently directed First Cow, mm. and on this, on, on this very podcast was recognized as the best director snubbed by the Oscars in the <laughs> uh, Snubby Awards episode we did earlier in the year. All of her films specialize in outsiders who are a little out of step with society and kind of doing their own thing. And in most of her films, her characters lead quiet lives and don't have much impact on the larger world. Like First Cow is these two guys who steal milk to sort of start a bakery in probably around the same period, maybe a little bit earlier. And so she can do period and she can do, she's done a couple films that are, I guess, kind of a bond between two, two men who are maybe ill at ease with communicating with the larger world. So that I think she can capture the dynamic that we want for the brothers. But I think it's interesting to see her take on these people who are early on seen by eccentric cranks by a lot of people, but then end up as these huge public figures completely changing the world. Cause none of her, you know, none of her movies have gone in that direction. I think it'd be interesting to see how she handles that. You know, I, I think that's an absolutely Kelly Riker. It's an absolutely inspired choice for that. The dynamics, the film, as you mentioned, I, I love her style of slow cinema. I think 
maybe it could be a chance for, you know, Kelly Reichert to work on something with a bit bigger budget. Yeah, because so she's everything. This actually works, this bigger canvas, you know, does her style translate? And again, the meticulousness that the rights work with and the patience that they have and this, this time where they're just biding their time trying to get their invention out there after they've spent all this time building it. You know, I think that's that would be really perfect for an approach that's inspired by slow cinema. Yeah, it really it really fits her style. Like thematically, it's you know she's a good choice for this. I think, and again, she's somebody. You know, all of her films are fantastic. She's an immensely talented director, and has never quite gotten that recognition. You know, apart from like you know the Independent Spirit Awards or something, the kind of the wider world still really hasn't given her the recognition she deserves. But as far as being a bigger budget, I mean, I think by her standards, a lot of her films are very very small. But apart from the couple of flight scenes, I feel like you could do this as a fairly small movie. You know, it would depend on how you'd stylize the flights themselves. And I think there's there's a lot of different ways that you do that, actually. I, I think you almost want to underplay the flights as being not dramatic swell of music and sensation, because that doesn't seem to be how these guys saw it. It was like, well, that test worked. Okay, let's go back and do the next thing. Like, they're very kind of workaday about this and I kind of feel like you want like the, I think the instinct is for the big Hollywood you know biopic is to build up this you know incredibly dramatic climax when they fly soar through the air like eagles but I think if you're looking at this through the Wright brothers eyes it's just a series of like this is the next step in our experimentation and our work and it's maybe not over dramatic it's just like oh that was that was a satisfactory result now we do the next you know <laughs> bit of tinkering yeah yeah I, I like I like that I like that idea this is how you show it it's this interplay between excitement and boredom in the work that they did and the movie itself. You know, you've got the airplane. It's relatively slow flight as well. You know, you can show the plane, you can show the ground, you can, you know, the, the wing warping, the way that the, the mechanics of the plane work. But this is a far cry from the end of an Avengers movie. That's not what this was. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's really... Forward. It's months and months of work for one minute of flight. Yeah. And, and we tend to forget the months and months of work, but that's that's kind of part of who these guys are and how they arrived at this. It is a lot of this preparation, a lot of this building, a lot of this, you know, they spend a lot of time perfecting the aerodynamics of the wing. You know, this is the process and outcomes of science. And this is something that, uh, you know, in part inspired me to pursue this, part dissatisfaction films like the imitation which don't really do much about the process of their work or what was the real value route yeah and i i really enjoy movies that focus on process whether it's creative or technological or anything or people actually doing the work and i'm always frustrated with ones that just gloss it over you know there's a running there's been a running thing on this show about how biopics are so often done badly and one of the classic examples is in the oliver stone uh, the doors movie there's a scene where they're working out Light My Fire and Raymond Zarek, the keyboard player, is like, hang on, hang on, I think I got something. Plink, plunk, doo -doo 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 -doo. and they just go into like the studio recording of the thing. Like he just, you know, hits the key, like just plunks the keyboard like three times and then he just plays it note perfect. Like, you know, having been in bands and college and stuff, like it's just laughable that that's how it works. You know, anyone who's worked on a, a long creative project knows that it doesn't really happen like that. It's really uncertain in the middle. Uh, you don't know what the end's going to look like. I mean, the rights didn't even know what flight was going to look like. You know, again, they didn't think that, you know, you could fly at night. 
you know, the Wrights thought that the airplane would make war impossible because they were thinking of war as two armies that were kind of lined up next to each other, shooting each other. And they thought, well, you could take the airplane, you could fly over to the other side, and you could see what they were doing, you could see what the, the layout of the plans were. You know, this would this would make war completely illogical because you could just tell what the other guy was going to. This is what they were thinking. They didn't think, all right, well, you can mount some guns on it and drop yeah, some yeah, bombs. Drop yeah, and that and that was the first use of aircraft and warfare was just to spy on the enemy. Yeah, yeah. In World War One, that's a lot of that kind of uh, you know, it's just that viewing. You know, and now we're back to uh, you know espionage of tracking people as location tracking. Well, that's that's the amazing thing. Like how much of our day to day lives are dependent on technology that all came from that one flight. Yeah, it's a key point where, again, there's a lot that was happening at that period, you know. But it's it's an exciting period. It's an exciting point where you think about, well, what does flight make possible? And yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, did you have any any actors in mind to play the Wright brothers? And are there any other characters that? you feel like, you know, need to be represented because there's going to be minor people throughout this, but. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, for the rights, you kind of need someone who's 30-ish and you need someone who's, they can step out of their shells, but they, that's not necessarily natural. And in some ways they're a bit nondescript. So, you know, I think of someone like, I I think of someone maybe like Patrick Wilson, actually, who I, I look at and I think it's, somewhat nondescript, but can act. And I'd be curious, like, what that might bring to the role. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, did you uh, did you have any thoughts on actors? Yeah, actually, these guys, you know, these guys were in their 30s at the time of the first flight. Orville was 34, Will was 30, and I usually start off with ages. But then looking at pictures of them, like, the, the first picture that comes up is uh, the Wikipedia article has pictures of them in 1905, two years after the first flight. And people in their 30s back then looked like people in their 50s in 2021. Oh yeah, everyone, everyone just looks old. Back yeah, then. you know, it's they were in their thirties, but you know, anyone like thirty to forty-ish. Yeah, know, I feel like you can cast that older. You know, Seth Rogen's in his forties. He doesn't look like <laughs> you know a serious adult who can build an airplane. So I went with actors in their forties who can look like they stepped out of another era because they've both on period stuff. So I had Michael Shannon as Wilbur, uh, who's the older brother, and Ben Wishaw as, as Orville. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, like, here, here's my here's my I like I like and yeah, here's my reasoning. They both they both on period TV shows. Shannon was on Boardwalk Empire, uh Wisha was on the last season of Fargo. And so we know they can kind of play old timey looking guys, um, and and you know, do that dialogue convincingly and sell it. But I also feel like they have a great on-screen dynamic with like Shannon is the stern, taciturn older brother, and then Wisha is like the more whimsical, talkative younger one. Because like, I don't know that much about their real life dynamic, but so many creative teams have like a creative type who can make imaginative leaps and a more structured mind who can keep things on task and make sure there's a finished product that works. And you see that with like songwriting duos and you see that with like Jobs and Wozniak and you see all these teams where the left brain and the right brain. And so I just feel like these two actors kind of represent these two, not entirely opposites, but their personalities or styles kind of complement each other. And Michael Shannon, you can just see as you know, the the very you know kind of serious guy, a few words, who's just you know, like maybe Wishaw is like the one who's like we changed history, and he's like that was successful, <laughs> you know, like and that's it. And the same thing with like you know, you can just see Michael Shannon like we have invented an aircraft. Can we see it? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, like I like I feel like you don't necessarily want this to be a jokey movie, but you can do this with a very dry sense of humor because he's so deadpan. And so, you know, like that was how they played him beautifully in Boardwalk Empire because he was so serious that it was really funny. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no getting around that this is, in a lot of ways, it is a dry away funny story. And I think accentuating that, that's good, you know, and I can see that dynamic working there. And that, you know, the, the rights, there's this famous bit where they, they wrote down where they'd been arguing with each other about some particular thing, and they wind up each convincing the other of their own position. So they swap places in the argument. So they have a rabbit season, duck season argument. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. That's definitely like a scene you need in this. And you kind of want, because in history, when we talk about them, they're just one person named the Wright brothers. And we don't really have a sense of them being distinct. I feel like you need actors with two different styles to give them different personalities, just to like tell them apart and give them a dynamic other than these two guys who did this thing together. That's such a great, like kind of quarrelsome brother thing to like, you know, we're arguing, oh, I changed my mind. Oh, we're still arguing. Oh, 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 totally. You know, and they had that. It was, it would need to differentiate them for a movie. It's, they're thought of as kind of one thing. I mean, the family itself was relatively, relatively insular, but also somewhat public. And that's a contrast that I, I think we've, we've come back to between brothers. There's also the right sister, uh, you know, Kate. Uh, they have two older brothers that, that uh, went off and started families. But when the rights were adults, they were living at home with their sister and their father. Oh, okay. Was, was the shape of their, they, both of them, all, both the brothers, uh, Orville and Wilbur, never married. Kate eventually married. And Orville kind of saw that as a betrayal. Like he thought that was like breaking up family this was like in the 30s i think this this was you know long after the airplane and wilbur and milton were dead but, right right yeah and there's stories of Orwell being a whimsical uncle in his later years so I, I i can i can see that well yeah that's an interesting we you know we hadn't really talked about uh what Catherine Wright, the sister but that's also another layer of kind of weird interesting dynamics that they kind of never outgrew this family unit yeah yeah it's and you can see them being too focused on the work to have time for like romance or whatever, but it seems like it goes beyond that after, if, you know, after they're successful, after, uh, after Wilbur dies, if Orville, Orville still never gets married and, you know, he's just this kind of loner who lives with his sister. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this tremendous mix of, of ambition, and lack of ambition. It's interesting about, uh, about Orville as well. Yeah, yeah. And as well, like, you know, Wilbur, like, they thought that, you know, when he was way younger, they thought he was going to go off to, like, a big-name college and, uh, you know, make something of himself. Instead, he got ill and never quite, Orville never quite launched. You know, they, then they just, well, well, we made an airplane. So, uh... All right, well, I think that's our movie. So if you have any thoughts on the Wright Brothers, whether man was meant to fly, or ideas for other movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at WhyMovie. Matt did a lot of research and production for The Moment, which is, again, a movie controlled by the audience's brainwaves. We're going to talk to the director of that movie next episode, so tune in next week for that. And in the meantime, you can read student journalism, hear college radio, and listen to other lesser podcasts on our parent website, subjectmedia.org. Stay safe out there, get your shot, keep yourself sane, and we'll be back next time on... Why, 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 why is this not a movie?